Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Kirk Gray. Hey, Kirk, we were just chatting about this, that, and the other thing. And you mentioned something about, you know, this company that, you know, was getting ready to to start thinking about reliability stuff. And you sent over a basic plan and then you didn't hear anything. And then you find out in the newspaper they're going, they're bust and they're selling off their assets. And right. I've run into a couple scenarios like that on occasion. And there's all kinds of pressures on startups or new companies, even divisions within a big company that, Hey, the market's gone, you know, it's been supplanted. It's not a business anymore. So that when I was at Hewlett Packard, it was, I mean, they were on the order of 50 different product lines, different divisions within the company. Right. But they didn't live forever. You know, this came and went and, and, and then those people went off to other parts of the company or left the company. But one of the thoughts I had and I, I, and even in our last discussion, we're talking about when, you know, early in the design before a prototype, when's the right time for a company to start thinking about the reliability and, and doing something about it? Not just kind of looking at it going, oh, it starts with an R. Let's put that on the wall there. Okay. Yeah. That's, right. that's one of the stickies we got to get to someday. Well, I, I think that, you know, you think about reliability when you start designing it. <laughs> And there's a thing called designing for reliability. Well, uh, and that's following. Did. Well, okay. And I think go even before that, though. Well. The concept okay. phase, you know, because by the time you start putting pen to paper, you already know you're going to make a metal case versus a plastic case. Right. The, the basic architecture is right, you're going right. to have redundancy or not redundancy. You know what kind of materials you're going to use. Uh, you know, you've hopefully done some CAD work and you've done some uh simulations on the computer with some of the areas that you are concerned with but uh following you know good um design rules and the uh and that's one thing that uh you know computers can help you certainly with um is doing checks like that but uh that's part of reliability i mean yeah we don't call it reliability but making the product um uh, functional, functional, <laughs> right? Thank you. you know, but that's where I run into, and I know you've heard it from design teams is, mm-hmm. you know, don't bother me with this reliability quality stuff. I'm trying to get it to work. You know, just, I, it's got a, this circuit right. is this, this, and this, and has these safeguards and this, this, and this, and this fallback, this, this, and this. And if it all works, this green light will come on. And, so far, right. we haven't figured that out yet. So don't well, bother me with the reliability stuff. Right. But they they built it under some design, probably nowadays, CAD system, that does, you know, has uh, simulation models, SPICE, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, that, and then that says, you know, that told them before they, before they laid the, the solder down uh, that – that was that design was going to work this way and it was going to behave this way yeah. then they built it and if it doesn't work yeah that's the what we were that's the big mystery that all of unreliability has to it usually yeah. because if it if we knew it was something was not going to work we wouldn't build it it showed somewhere along the design in the first 
you know, subsystem productions of whatever power supplies that those would work. And then you put them together and you find out, well, maybe this power supply or this motor doesn't have enough margin to get up to speed when it needs to be because of the power supply was just right on the hairy edge or yeah. something like yeah. that. Well, there's, there, I mean, but that's, I think that's still way too late to, to start the starting, the thinking of the reliability part of it. it well, it, no, it, I said in design, you, you, well, when you're designing. The start. <laughs> what is the start? What market are you going into? Where are you going to sell this thing? What's the well, environment? Right. What, what, are know, the what are the features you're going to add? What are the features you're going to put? What's, yeah, what are you going to distinguish? How are you going to distinguish your product from ones that are already there? That's right. Is this product, I'm, one of the questions I ask every single client I work with is, well, what are you trying to achieve? How reliable does it need to be versus your cost versus all these other factors you have to consider where does reliability stack up in that and how important is it and they say well we didn't think about that <laughs> well how reliable i mean you can make how reliable well we're gonna have all of them reliable all well, of them are yeah work. well it doesn't matter if they all fail that's still a reliability performance you know it's just not good reliability performance it's, <laughs> if you never think about it and there's plenty of people that just design products and crank them out and think of connectors kirk yeah. they crank them out right right thousands billions billions right every version of connector or of, right. of a socket connector right dim you know zero insertion force ziff connectors all that stuff they crank them out and they go well right. we made 300 versions of this, and this is just number 302. So it's reliable. Well, how reliable? <laughs> Until it's not. But it's the, they don't, it's just not part of the process of well, thinking through is it useful or not? Well, you know, just thinking of all those kinds of connectors, there's the airline connector, you know, that you have a plug and you screw it, you screw the two parts together. There's sometimes clips. There's sometimes uh, nothing. just friction, nothing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, the consideration of what environment is this going to go to? It's a high vibration environment? Well, you definitely have a clip or some lockdown for that connector. Well, you need to look under the hood of your car, maybe in your scooter, your electric yeah. scooter, how many clips are on the connectors. The idea is, yeah. is that's right. when reliability starts. It's right. It's what's the environment? Are you in right. a high vibration or a high salt right. fog or this or are that? Are you going to be outdoors? I just thinking about, Portable. you know, gas, the gas pumps here in, in Colorado have to work at, and I don't think they're self-heated. <laughs> <laughs> well, they could be. It's I used to work on a product four degrees or minus 10 degrees. And then, and then at noon, it's eight, it's 80 degrees in a thunderstorm. <laughs> it's, I've been yeah. there. Yeah. But, I drove from the airport to Fort Collins and I went through four seasons. Right. And it, and it does happen. We have probably the worst thermal cycling conditions for just outdoor, uh, environments because of the high sun, uh, well, you're being, at 5,000 feet, you're at right. a relative high altitude. And so the air is a little thinner, so it doesn't. It doesn't right. heat sink this stuff very well. We get also we get seventeen percent more sun's energy at this altitude. Really? So huh. yeah. So that's why when the sun's out here, we can stand forty five degrees. It's easy. Yeah, because you have all this radiant heat hitting you. Well, that and also the air is kind of thin, and I I think you just said it right. It doesn't transfer heat as well. Exactly. It's cold. Exactly. So you can stay warmer in a what is a colder temperature 
like in Dallas yesterday, it was I was watching the Cowboy game and it was 14 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, 14 degrees Fahrenheit would feel like minus 20 here. I mean, that would be the same because of the density and moisture content in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And I've been growing up in Dallas. That would be brutal. I mean, that would freeze pipes and cause all kinds of is going to cause all kinds of problems. Yeah. People aren't prepared. That's because they're so prepared there. (laughs) (laughs) So you're right. Looking at the environment, you know, what, you know, choosing the parts for the conditions and expected environments is certainly part of what I consider reliability, but I'm not involved in. Uh, That's usually up to the design engineer. If somebody were to come to me and say. Well, reliability happens with the design team. You know, it doesn't happen because you're there. No, no, it doesn't. And they have to know these kind of things before, you know, that they're going to use a locking connector or which is more expensive than one that's not. And, you know, that's a few pennies here or there or use a, you know, an airline or what do you call it, avionics connector where you has a plug and you screw it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's all kinds of trade-offs and considerations that start as the concept comes together. You know, Absolutely. And, and, yes. and, and some of them, well, we'll get to that later. Uh, and I like, okay. And now your design's locked in, your budget's locked in, your supply chain's yeah. locked in, and you realize this thing melts in the sun in, in Denver and it's an outdoor product. I <laughs> right, think you've right. made a mistake here, dude. <laughs> you know, And they could have avoided it by thinking through it a little bit before they got there. Out here, it's more of a, also the UV radiation and you know, cross-linking of plastics. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. after a while, they'll become very brittle. Well, it's not actually cross-linking. It's called chain scissioning. Is, oh, chain scissioning. Yeah, okay. so there's a polymer is, comes in long chains of all these, you know, material, big chain, and those chains all wrap together. And then, so some plastics are flexible, some aren't, and all the other stuff. But yeah, uh, cross-linking, I used to work in a company that we did cross-linking. And we, it made the plastic that we were using, the polymer we were using, so that the it didn't melt. Right. The chains Makes didn't it much come harder. apart. The chains didn't come apart when right. you heated it, so they didn't get soft. It just stayed exactly like it was up to a certain point, and then you caught on fire and you know, it was gone. But right. then the other thing that happens is that UV does, and it's not the only mechanism, but one of them right. is, is that, that it attacks the oxygen primarily and it separates those chains and so instead of having a the equivalent of a a foot long or you know a meter long chain of of string now you got six small pieces of string and it's just not as strong well it can be used in photo recess for instance when i was in photo resist deposition systems and uh photolithography it it was used uh they found out later to make the photoresist even harder after the, uh, you know, um, basic image was made and the um, light hardened it, you could put it under UV and make it even harder, Mm -hmm. uh, which was another part of a process that they developed. But yes, so you've got to, you've got to, you know, look at your environment, your use profiles. But a lot of times for me, what I see is engineers kind of downplay the worst case scenarios of oh, that. You know, well, there's a, uh, it'll a, normally be used this way. Yeah, well, no, yeah, usually, yeah, not really guys. Yeah. yeah. Not, you guys, you guys are really kind of narrow minded. You know, the customer is always going to do this. 
Yeah. Um, maybe not. Maybe you not. Know? No. This is a portable device within <laughs> you not you're expecting it'll never be dropped. Well, it's expensive. Right. Nobody will drop it. Exactly. And they ought to put a case on it. Yeah. Well, no. Well, then you put a case on yeah, it. Yeah, you put a case. Right. That should be part of the design. And it, I know well, I've Steve told you Bob the story. Says, oh, it, it ruined my beautiful iPhone if I put a case on it. Oh, yeah. No, you don't want that because then it's not slippery anymore. <laughs> I know I've told you the story of this one company. They were making um, the baggage tag readers. It was a little yeah. wireless handheld that they would, you know, barcode scan the everything right. going on the plane right. coming off the plane right. and they drove out to the airport to see why all their their first uh, betas were all coming back shattered <laughs> and i said it took you guys actually going to the airport to watch them load a baggage before you figured out what was happening and it's yeah. well we never expected they'd drop it we oh put a lanyard God. on it so it would hang on oh, their hip. Oh, yeah, that ain't gonna yeah. happen. <laughs> well, they were supposed to put it on the. They're supposed to put the lanyard on there. You know, they're supposed to do this. Whatever, yeah. you guys. It's in the manual. No, no, that's not the way people do. They're not going to read it. Not, you know, I got to put this ring around my head, and you know. Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't think it happen. And this no. only works under you know ring lights, uh, right? That, uh, you know, floodlights or something like they're that. They're going to grab it. They're going to throw it to the other guys across the onto the, the track tarmac. and sometimes get it. And yeah, yeah, it might be going twelve feet. You know, they they're expecting it to be very robust, and it should be. Well, they found that the there was a direct correlation between the severity of their drop testing. So the original one, as you can imagine, was right off the standard. They never made a handheld thing before. They did barcode readers and other stuff, but like at a grocery store. So it had to survive a 10-pound bag of sugar drop right. on it. Right? In other words, they didn't do a, an increasing step stress where they found out the full well, where they did. it failed. Did no, they? they did. Yeah, they eventually were able to replicate this type of damage that they were getting. And it was like with a 10 foot drop to concrete. Right. Okay. They were doing a three foot drop onto carpet because that's what the standard was that they were, <laughs> they looked up. But anyway, long story short is they ended up with like a, it was, they had to put a hole in the roof of the, where the lab they were so they could get enough height and they would drop it like 80 or 90 times or something like that. And if the, if it survived, uh, the design survived a, uh, a hundred drops from that height. Um, and I asked him, did you figure out what the terminal velocity of this thing is? You know, is it right? At some point higher is at just not going to help you. It, that, right. It's going to come down. As hit. I did see a, a test where it was for um, uh, hailstones and they yeah. had like a, a, a super air gun thing that would blast it out at terminal velocity into the right. product. It right. Was, it was, brutal but right. the, the, but these guys found that they said well let's double what that standard says and then they found out that their products lasted like an extra week in the field and then they tripled it and they says oh it lasts a little bit longer so they they just made their criteria to the design team you have to pass this drop test and it's ever getting bigger right and then they had a really nice correlation with the decrease in warranty expenses uh and it was they had to get really, really good at how do you deal with shock. And their design ended up being really, really amazing. Right, um, which should be. I, you know, I expect when I drop my remote controls or any handheld electronics, it's not going to break the first drop. Well, how's that going and, for you? 
<laughs> well, I've dropped a lot of, you know, remotes and stuff in my phone, but my phone has a case on it because it was not designed to take drops. But, uh, you know, also I've been with lots of companies that use a tumbler. I mean, they build yeah. a special, like uh, one, Omita Medical Systems, that doesn't exist anymore, built a handheld pulse oximeter, one of the first handheld pulse yeah. oximeters. And they built this um, kind of Z-looking big box. It, it was has sort of a Z uh, shape to it. Huh. And they could put 20 or 30 of those in there, or 10. I don't know how many they do. They said it was the noisiest thing in the world. You know, they had to put it out of the room because it was about a six foot wide, and it would just keep tumbling. It oh, would wow. turn, tumble. So you get all these random shocks and interactions. And right, yeah, because, you know, you'd, I'd ask in that guy, you know, in the in – the, uh, UPC, the car, the barcode reader that was used in airlines, you know, okay, do they know what angles, you know, ha was a hundred drops? Did it, did it get every potential shock angle on that? Probably, maybe, I don't know. That's really important. I mean, where you hit the where thing. Where you hit it. Yeah. And that was, you know, that yeah. was before finite element was in the CAD systems and, and relatively yeah. simple to use. It's still not trivial. You got to do it right. But the these days, and I've done that with products more recently, is like, this is a drop product that's going to get dropped. Oh, we're right. not worried about that. It's expensive. Right? <laughs> Let's do a CAD. And where does that energy go? And usually right. it goes right straight to the biggest IC you got in the middle of your circuit right. board. Or the biggest mass or maybe something like that. Right. Yeah. And it just, what's the strength, you know, sheer strength of that? Oh, it's, you know, whatever. Six foot pounds or whatever it is. And so, yeah. you know, your CAD just is saying 20 foot pounds of force across it here. I think it was going to break. Oh, it'll never break. And then we get the, the first prototype. We drop it two feet onto carpet and it shatters. And I'm like, I, right. Trust your CAD, dude. Trust your CAD. <laughs> but even if it doesn't shatter, Fred, the biggest thing that is not, uh, I think, realized by design engineers or considered is cumulative fatigue. Yeah. Not yeah. just that one drop. Yeah, it can pass. Could probably pass five of those. Yeah. But each time you're, you're taking causing, a little life out of it. Yeah, you're taking life out of it. You're weakening it, and and that's you know okay. It, the customer only drop it five times in ten years. Whatever. You're only no. allowed to. It's in the manual. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I get. You know, it can pass the test once. Can pass the test twice. But if it's in the field and getting this, you know, 30 times a year or 40, uh, it's building up in every case, it's building up fatigue damage. And that's what eventually uses it causes a, a structural or material failure. It's not very I don't think there's much fatigue damage internally in electronics. So oh, no, but in the in the vias and the leads and the and vias, all right. those kind of things they can. Exactly. But I was hoping you would go in this direction when I brought this topic up. I kind of sprung it on you <laughs> as we started, is that when to consider reliability is you and I think about well, how is the stresses this product's going to see right. Right. Uh, cause immediate or or accumulated damages. We we think about failure mechanisms now. Uh, Henry Petrosky, and who I was trying to mention earlier, it wrote a book about design paradigms, the kind of the traps design teams get in, into mm -hmm. and create faulty designs. Right. And one one of the things he talks about, and I think it's in the prologue, is that designers tend to design away from failure for success. They they 
I mean, and I, I find it was intuitive and I experienced right. it myself as most designers really, except in the military, we, which we won't talk about, uh, <laughs> want to create a product that's going to work. The, right. There's a bit of, you know, craftsmanship and pride in right. the work and all these other right. things that go into it. Yeah. And to get the day's work done, it's got to work. And part of that equation is, is the building the robustness in or doing the margin stuff in it and right. realizing that the world is not perfect and so on. Right. What happens though, is that the design team says, well, how do we know that, what do we need to do to make sure it's good enough for drop? And so there's a standard out there that a bunch of, you know, folks sat in a room someplace and came to the lowest common denominator they all could agree on. And right. It's, you know, 10 drops randomly on the, right. from two feet right. on the carpet. Right. But your product is not on carpet and it's not a two foot drop. <laughs> it's on no. a tarmac getting run over by baggage carriers. <laughs> right. And we won't, we won't expect that, you know, if it was dropped and run over by the seven, 37 plane under its wheels that is necessarily going to survive. Okay. That may happen, but that is an unreasonable expectation. Although you could do it. You could probably make a, a scanner, you know, titanium. Yep. It doesn't get run over. And then you have a flat tire. <laughs> <laughs> Which is more expensive the scanner or the, yeah, that's right. So, yeah. right. So, so there are limits and there are reasonable levels of robustness. And everybody would say, well, you know, and Greg always uses the fundamental limits of technologies. Any, any using standard materials and processes, uh, what, um, what its intrinsic limitations yeah. are and not any special materials. But that you can make things pretty robust with just, you know, plain old FR4 and – Regular yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. The idea, though, is that at the start is what what are the sets of stresses that you expect to see? And then folks like you and I should be involved or experienced design teams that think about, well, how does those stresses actually manifest themselves in problems? Right. And how do we design away from that? And how do we know which ones to check and stuff like that? Yeah. So I really, really think that you start well before the design starts it's in the concept phase is market research and that kind of stage you're building something for marine use you're going to definitely consider salt water and salt and for example i mean it's exactly right it's it's yeah it's those that process starts and is usually not by reliability engineers right. so part of our work is reliability professionals is to help that team that's the the select few that are going to create the concept for our brand new product line um, have the w awareness of how important it is to think through all of those factors, the stresses and material interactions and uh, latent defects and all those other parts of it that go into the very early concept elements of designing a product. So that's my take on it. <laughs> and later we can go prove them wrong by breaking it 10, 10 different ways. But that's, that's just the fun that's going to happen later. Right. But most engineers don't want to think about the extremes of what a product, you know, I talked to you about a company that just went bankrupt that yep. was making uh, clean hydrogen. And I talked to him, I said, you're going to put these out in, you know, in uh, uh, the desert. Okay, because they have to be near the like photovoltaic or wind or they're just going to be sitting out, you know, and I said, they're not going to be, you're not going to have them heated, are you? And they're, 
they're going to have to. <laughs> I said, well, you know, we uh, no, it's yeah. no, there's always going to be, you know, this temperature, whatever. Yeah, so. yeah it's the it's the hand waving and smoke and mirrors. I mean, right. and it's there's all kinds of reasons for that. Oftentimes, it's they hadn't considered reliability and as a as a feature no. of their product that it has to work. We just want to get it to work in the ideal uh, 25C environment. Uh, you know, low humidity. We'll, we'll only use them in computer rooms. Yeah. <laughs> Air-conditioned, temperature-controlled rooms. That's where yeah. we use this thing. Right. So anyway, that's yeah. that's true. They, and I just think they don't really think about uh, fatigue in time, cumulative fatigue over time yeah. much. Yeah. You know, you go through it a few rounds, you finally get some products out there. People learn it the hard way. You can avoid that. Just listen to the podcast and you'll be fine. <laughs> so, Or hire you, a very experienced engineer that has been through that. Yeah, that's right. So if you've, you know, listened to this and, and, you know, when do you, when does your organization start thinking through the reliability aspects of their product? And, and it may or may not involve you, uh, but when does it actually start? Um, be, I'm very curious. I should do a survey on this one. Um but let us know. Head over to AscendoReliability.com slash go slash SOR. You can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us. Kirk and I and the other hosts are available through LinkedIn and our about pages on Ascendo Reliability. Um, yeah, no, it, it's, at least they didn't owe you money, that company that went bankrupt. So <laughs> that's a, a good thing, I guess. Well, you know, here uh, it's one of the things that, yeah, they don't owe me money um, and I don't want to be a bad luck for anybody. But, uh, you know, it was totally not related to anything I was doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it's um, it's always interesting, um, you know, to see. Well, some I know when you see them, you say that's this thing. I don't know if you've ever been in a company and you say this is just not going to fly. Yeah, no, I did. That's where I'd want to make. That's where I heard the excuse of, "Well, it's expensive. Of course, they're going to take care of it." Like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, just to wrap up, you know, we'll say one company called Data Play. They were making little floppy disk about the size of a nickel or wow. quarter, wow. and they thought that you could, you know, and this was technological obsolescence was going way fast faster than they really had taken into consideration because, you know, the idea of any kind of uh, fixed or any kind of fixed meat or media, using media, it's gone. Yeah. DVD, CDs, all that is kind of starting to disappear, right? Yeah, yeah. And they they thought that they could have this little floppy disk that you'd get lost in your pocket. I looked at that and I said, no. And they had all these people working and got some big award at CES that year for their display. But did they ever make a product that got into the field? No. <laughs> it was just yeah i just looked at it and i said this ain't gonna fly they even asked me to come work for them and i said no this you know yeah, i didn't have yeah, well didn't. you know if only we could predict the ones that would fly and we oh man, game we changer that'd be fun we yeah could be rich. anyway we can dream about that and hopefully it's okay. reliable well stay warm fred yeah you too you got a much bigger challenge than i do for that <laughs> and i i say did did they design all this stuff that sits outdoors for minus five Fahrenheit? Oh, don't, don't, don't look too hard. You're going to jinx it. You'll be out of power. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck to you out there. Right. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Fred. Talk to you later. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic, 
that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes, or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.